Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daryl-Lise Lyons. And I'm Anna-Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. Today, we're discussing last week's episode, LGBTQIA+, Embracing the Spectrum of Human Sexuality and Gender Identity. If you haven't listened to that episode already, please stop now, go back and listen. It will be helpful to have a sense of context for everything we'll be discussing. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot to talk about in regards to this episode and a lot that we couldn't cover and a lot that even in this Q&A we won't be able to cover. But I think the LGBTQIA community is a marginalized community that there's a lot to learn about. And so I'm really glad to be discussing this. Yeah, me too, Daryl-Lise. And I have so many questions. Yeah, I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, This is such a broad topic. And I think uh, we've already spoken about this, Anna-Marie, but we're going to be going more in depth in future episodes and future seasons. Awesome. Well, my first question is about trans competencies. You talked about that in this episode. And I was wondering, how do trans competencies keep the trans world safe? Yeah. Okay. So trans competency trainings are trainings that are aimed at teaching people how to become more competent, which I know I just answered a definition with a definition. So let me, let me talk about what that means. So these kinds of trainings really center around supporting people in developing skills that build equity and inclusion, um, supporting people in sort of being affirming and uplifting to the trans community. And these trainings can be for members of the LGBT community, to allies, they can be conducted in work environments and organizations, really like raising awareness for people that don't have a lot of experience with the trans community or don't believe that they have a lot of experience. Because I think a lot of times people make assumptions around that. And the truth is, is that you don't really know someone's gender until that person shares it with you, right? So in terms of your question, Anna-Marie, it's really essential for more people to learn about trans individuals and to see their stories and their struggles represented. And something a lot of people don't know is that Black trans women are the most at-risk people in our society today. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that whenever you're dealing with marginalized identities, right, there's a compounding factor. So if you're at risk because you're a person of color, you're at risk because you're Black, and then you're also at risk because you're trans, we're seeing a lot of the intersection of transphobia and racism. And so when you ask the question about how trans competency can make people safer, I think that the more that there is trans visibility and the more highlighting of the stories of trans people and the more highlighting of the ways in which people are at risk or have been made unsafe, or even the ways that language can be really emotionally harmful, right, and and toxic, Uh, the more that people start to raise their awareness of these things, the more, I think, just the more allyship and accompliceship becomes a natural part of the conversation and a natural progression. And also, you know, I think it's really important Uh, trans competency trainings and just illuminating trans stories in general, right? Like, it's not just about the stories of victimization and pain, but also real affirming stories and, and showing those dichotomies and showing the difference when people are 
met with receptivity and feel embraced. And so I think that the more that people can begin to see various stories and see trans people represented, the more safe spaces there will be for members of the LGBTQ community, specifically trans individuals. Darylise, did you get to check out that story I sent to you about Kristen Becker? She's a former Navy SEAL, and so she transitioned, and she talked about her transition and how, first of all, I have to say she's so brave. I was so impressed by this story because you have to be the most brave person in the world to be like a SEAL and then to really like truly embrace who you are and to go through that transit. It's just so incredible for her to like embrace who she was and have just the audacity to do so and speak up for transgender people is incredible to me. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a, there's a lot of pain in that experience, right? And her experiences because of how she was received. And I think that the more that people highlight trans stories and are willing to be visible and willing to let their coming out process be scrutinized, I just think the more we raise awareness. And so that's such an, I'm so glad that you sent me that information and we'll absolutely put a link to the show notes for listeners to become more aware because I think, you know, the culture of machismo and toxic masculinity, like a lot of times when people hear people say that, like they're not, it's like, well, what does that even mean? Right. And I think these stories, like Kristen's stories, illuminate what that means, right? That it creates an unsafe space for people to be who they are. And so if that's true, if toxic masculinity creates those sort of unsafe spaces, well, then the reverse is also true, right? That allowing for an awareness that gender is constructed and that we superimpose these views and these values on things that really are not intrinsic to people's identity. Like, I think the more that we can dismantle that, the more it, it genuinely creates, to your question, Anna Marie, about trans competencies, like, the more it genuinely creates spaces for everybody to have to subscribe less to these binaries. And, you know, and I think Kristen's story is exceptional. And I wish that she had been met with more receptivity and love, because I think that would have been a very different story, right? Like a very affirming story, as opposed to one that where she was so brave, as you point out, and and really fought so hard. But it's sad that she had to fight so hard for that. Yeah. um, And I love if people go and check out the CNN, the interview that Anderson Cooper did with her, they'll see how she talks about all the things that she has in common with her SEAL friends. And if people could just focus on that rather than her transition, they would all just get along because they they still have so many commonalities that didn't go away just because she transitions, right? So I thought that was a very powerful statement. But I have another question for you because as I was growing up, I always thought that queer was a pejorative word. So when did that become more accepted by the LGBTQIA community? And why do you think that the word queer is more accepted now? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a really good in-depth article on pride.com about this. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's there. there is, there's a historical progression of how that word queer went from being pejorative to really being reclaimed and celebrated within the LGBTQ community. And it started somewhere in the 1980s 
to be revitalized and repurposed in that way. And I think there's a lot of reasons that the word has become embraced. And one of the reasons is that it's it's really unifying, right? So like the word in and of itself, if someone says that they're queer, it's like there's it's not clearly definable, right? So in and of itself, that word really breaks down binaries and allows for flexibility. And I think there's this notion that sexual identity, sexual orientation are these fixed concepts, right? And and people both within and outside of the LGBTQIA community often have that viewpoint. And queerness kind of pushes against all of that because it's a very amorphous term and and it doesn't really, it, it's not fixed, right? So there's fluidity in the word and someone can be queer and they can date people of all genders, right? Or they, and, and there's a lot of nuance within the word queer and it leaves a lot of room, I think, for exploration. But I have to admit on a personal level that like you, Anna Marie, when I was growing up, I did hear queer as, as more of a pejorative word and, a, you know, an insult. And, and so it really... It, it took some time for me to get used to, like, after only having heard it as a slur. And so I think the first few times I heard it as like a reclaimed word and a word of power and a word of sort of unification and unity, I was like, wait, did they just say, like, did that person just say that, you know? And, and so it took me a little while, but I've since really come to love and, and embrace that word and embrace the fact that it's, it really does, it pushes against the binaries. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. Yeah. Well, speaking of binary, can you explain binaries? Can you explain what gender bending is? Yeah. So gender bending is such a great phrase, but it's also like such a confusing one, right? Because like, how do you bend gender if gender is constructed? So I'll, I'll just go back and say that there's a lot of really false ideas about gender that we have in our society, right? Like that by virtue of certain anatomical parts, a person is more likely to do certain things or more unlikely to do certain things. And, and that's really, I mean, I think that's really confining for people and it leads to a lot of stereotypes, you know, like we, we tell girls they have to wear dresses and play with Barbies and, and tell boys things like boys don't cry. Right. And, and people are just conditioned early and often to live their lives within these prescriptive and these narrowly constructed binaries. And so gender bending is a term, it's terminology that refers to people who step outside of that and say, you know what, like, I'm not going to behave in ways that I'm told I, I need to because of some other people's expectations about what it means to be a certain gender. And so a really great example of that would be Jaden, the son of Will and Jada Pinkett Smith, right? And so Jaden wears what he wants to wear. He doesn't subscribe to societal expectations. There have been like so many, I think, different articles written about how Jaden will, you know, dresses in skirts. And we'll put a link, I think, to a Style Craze article about that. But really why I'm bringing that up is that that type of representation and visibility, I think, is so important because it really lets people know that if gender is constructed, it can also be deconstructed, right? So like, I think gender bending is great terminology, but also I kind of want to push back a little bit against the idea of gender bending because it's like, well, how do you bend something if it's not fixed, if it is constructed, right? Like, so the more that we can defy these beliefs about gender and the more that we can stop subscribing to these arbitrary binaries, I think then the more people can just 
be who they are and do what they do. And if someone identifies as male and wears a dress, it's like, oh, cool. Like that's what someone does, right? And and if someone identifies as, as female and, and wants to, I don't know, like <laughs> watch sports or whatever, whatever the, the ideas are around what certain genders do, like so there's a great freedom in stepping outside of these constructed natures of gender. However, because of societal pressures and expectations, there's also a lot of, I think, pushback that people get. And so the more that we can stop creating these false ideas around gender, I think the less people will even need to gender bend because they'll just do what they do. And there will be far fewer expectations around what right. they're supposed to do based on their anatomy. Well, I am noticing more celebration around people stepping outside of those boxes. Like, for instance, there was a girl who she's a soccer player, but she kicked two winning points or I don't know much about football, but she stepped onto the football team at Vanderbilt. And, you know, she was practicing with them for quite some time, but she like got them the two points that won the game. And once again, don't quote me on <laughs> football terminology, but like, <laughs> yeah. she, like she stepped onto the team and like helped them win a game. And I think that's pretty cool. That's stepping outside of a norm. Yeah. I love that. We'll put a link to that article as well. Cause I do remember seeing that. And I think the more we can celebrate those moments, the more sort of normative they become. Right. And the, and the less, these moments are remarkable, but also they kind of shouldn't be remarkable, right? Like, and the, the less there are expectations around gender, I think the more normalized things like that become uh, and the more expansive the possibilities become. Yes. Well, she's a great role model for many. Well, I have another question. So is cisgender synonymous with the word straight? And where does the word cisgender come from? Oh, that's such a good question. So this really speaks to this misconception that people have around gender and sexual orientation being sort of conflated, right? That like a person's gender has anything to do with their sexual orientation. And and it really, it really doesn't. So when we talk about the definition of cisgender, it means relating to or being a person whose gender identity corresponds with the sex that that person was identified as having at birth. Got it. So does that make sense? Because I was like, I should explain that a little more. <laughs> but, but yeah, so cis actually is like a Latin prefix, right? That means on the side of, right? So like if a person is born with a certain anatomical parts and is deemed to be, let's say like female, right? At birth, the doctor says they're female, their parents say they're female at birth based on their sexual anatomy. And that person goes through the rest of their life consistently identifying as female, then that person would be cisgender, right? So like, that's just an example. But gender and sexual orientation are completely different things. So that person can be cisgender, a cisgender female, they can be queer or gay or lesbian or asexual or, you know, any other way that they identify themselves as in terms of sexual orientation, but their gender is the same gender that they were identified as having at birth. And then on the on the other side of that, though, right, is that trans comes from the Latin word, which means either across from or on the other side of. So essentially, a trans person is on the other side of or across from the gender they were assigned at birth. So someone is born, they're assigned a certain gender based on their sexual anatomy at that time. 
And if they sort of live the rest of their life according to those definitions that they were given at birth, then they would be determined to be cis. And if they are not, if those anatomical sort of definitions don't align with who they really are and they transition, right, to the gender that is actually their actual gender and different than the gender that they were assigned at birth, then that person would be identified as trans. Well, thank you for that explanation. I I really, I feel like I'm just so in the dark about so much and I want to learn. So thank you for sharing this. Um, but Darylise, I'm noticing that hate crimes seem so much more intense and violent against the LGBTQIA community than even the Black community. And this is just what I'm noticing. I don't know if that's true, but like, why do you think queerness bothers people outside of the community so much? Yeah, so that's a really charged question. I mentioned earlier that Black trans women are the most at-risk members of society. And so I think that the intersectionality of identity is is really a huge factor, right? So like, I wouldn't necessarily say that members of the LGBTQ community are more at risk than members of the Black community. But like, I would say that someone who is LGBTQ and Black is more at risk than someone who is just Black or someone who is just LGBTQ. And so I think really a lot of people have a number of simultaneous marginalized identities. And then the other thing is like, how visible is that identity, right? So like, you'll hear language around someone who is straight passing or cis passing, right? Or and that kind of thing. So like if someone is more visibly identifiable um, as a member of the LGBTQ community or more visibly identifiable as a person of color, like that can make that person more likely to be targeted. So you're right. There's a lot of very intense violence and, and it's very pervasive. And, you know, listeners might be familiar with the name of Matthew Shepard, but in case they're not, Matthew Shepard was a young gay man who was murdered in 1998. And it, it was heinous, the violence that he was subjected to. And after Matthew Shepard died, his mother, Judy, became a fierce advocate for the LGBTQ community um, and an advocate against violence. And Something that she says that's really powerful is that people have to be taught to hate. And I think that what we're bumping up against in the LGBTQ community is that there are a lot of people who have been taught to hate. And I think a lot of this has to do with this false conflation between certain forms of sexuality and certain forms of gender identity and sinfulness, right? And there's this this idea, I mean, I know we explored it a little bit in, in the episode, but about how LGBTQ life had to kind of go underground and become invisible because of the fierce brutality um, and the persecution that LGBTQ people were, were subjected to. And so a lot of that has really led to misrepresentations of LGBTQ life. And I think that gets both interjected by people and externalized in homophobia and transphobia. And so, you know, it is, it, it's, it's heinous. And a lot of that comes from ignorance and fear and dehumanization and, and misconceptions. And I think it gets complicated. And this is true in general. You know, this is just true, I think, in terms of when violence is afflicted against any members of a marginalized community is that it gets more complicated and more violent when the victim is cast as the victimizer. And so what I mean by that is that when people have a misconception about uh, what it is to be an LGBTQ individual, and when that is conflated around sinfulness or somehow perceived to be a threat 
to someone's way of life or someone's, I, I don't even want to say someone's religious values, but someone's misinterpretation of their own religion, right? Like that, that can lead to a lot of violence because there's a misconception that the person who is being victimized is somehow a threat and they're cast as victimizer. And then that gives people the green light to do atrocious things. And so I think really that's why representation is so important. That's why trans competencies are so important, why visibility is so important, because the more that people tell themselves that queerness is transgressive or dangerous or an affront to heteronormativity, the more likely people are going to be to lash out against that. But the more that the reverse is true, right? That people can see LGBTQ people living lives and, and contributing to society and which, you know, so many, so many people do, right? Like LGBTQ individuals are this wonderful intersectional connection of all different people from all different stratospheres of life. And I think the more that people can see that and become aware of that and, um, and celebrate that, like the sort of the more that the violence and the vitriol will, will be stripped out of the rhetoric and will be stripped out of people's behaviors because there is nothing transgressive or dangerous about people living as their true selves, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like. Well, Darylise, do you have any good books that you can recommend to help someone coming out or to support someone coming out? Yeah, sure. So a book I really like is the title is actually Coming Out, but then the subtitle is I Think I'm Gay, The Ultimate Guide to Self-Acceptance coming out, building a support system and loving your new life by Kevin Bryson. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And that's a really in-depth exploration of how someone might come out and as the title says, build a support system and really be empowered right in that process. And I also want to include a link to a Healthline article by Sian Ferguson entitled 20 Things to Know Before You Come Out and How to Go About It. And that's a really comprehensive article and a free resource too. I always love giving free resources. But I think that families and coworkers and allies should do their own work to let the person in their life and just to let it be known just in general that they're receptive, right, to those conversations and open because I think it can be really hard to come out, especially if you don't know how you'll be met or you don't know that the people that love and support you will love and support you through your transition or through your exploration or, you know, or just through your self-identification of something that you've always known, right? So it was, it was really funny. You know, I remember coming out to my mom and my sister in the car one day as sexually fluid, although at the time, I don't think that was my language around it. I think I just said I'm in a relationship with a woman. And I like, I just, I remember like their, their reactions. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, were you afraid to share that? And what was their reaction? Yeah, no, I mean, I think like one of the joys about my family is that um, my nuclear family, right? Like my mom, my sister and I, like we're, it's very small and we're sort of very supportive and super kind of like woke and just like very, we, you know, I don't know, like it, we're, we're just very embracing. Right. And, and so I remember at the time, my sister gave me a high five actually in the car and she was like, She's like, oh, you're so much cooler now. Like, I'm like, I'm so grateful that you're my sister. And then my mom, like at the time, I think she was just like pretty stymied. Like she was like, oh, like really? Like, you know, and then she just asked me like a bunch of questions, but not judgmental questions, just like, oh my God, like tell me about this person that you're dating and like like and how long and and why didn't you tell me sooner? You know, like it was just very 
right. um, easy. And I think, you know, my family is like super progressive again. And, and so even if we don't understand something, like, I think that was maybe where my mom was coming from at the time. And she was just like, uh, like, tell me more about you, my daughter and like your life. And it, it was, it was very supportive and very safe. And when I wrote the article for the Broad Street Review that I wrote about my sexuality, my mom actually proofread it for me. That's awesome. I know. Yeah. And as you know, Anna Marie and listeners might know, she does all the content editing and creative collaborating for this podcast, right? So she like reads and reviews all our content. And she read the book that I wrote, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and like did a lot of the back end editing for that. So she's really, my mom's a really strong ally for equity and inclusion, whatever the issue, like whether it be LGBTQ or race or religion or, and I, and I think some of that comes from the fact that like she was a single mom and she's just always existed maybe like on the, she's never felt a need to define herself based on societal expectations or norms. And one of the things though that did really come up for me was when my mom heard Oliver's story, which is in the episode about how Oliver's mother disowned them for their trans identity. I like, I just remember my mom being really, really just so struck by that and having a conversation around that where she was just like, oh my God, like, I just want you to be you and I want you to be embracing of your identity. And I might not always understand it, but like, I always want to be a person that you can be yourself with. So essentially, like it was super easy. And then my sister just thought I was way cooler than I actually am, right? <laughs> when I came out first as bisexual and then later. <laughs> you got some points there with your sister. That's awesome. I know, I know. She's like, oh my God, you're so like, you know, like now I can be proud of you. So it was, it was nice. Well, Sonny and Tyler are the best. And I have to say like your mom, as a mother myself, is a role model. I just... Yeah, you want to embrace your children for everything that they are and and just love them no matter what. Even like you said, if you don't understand something, you come to understand it because you love them so much. And I can't imagine being any other way. Yeah. Well, one of the cool things was in this episode, I know we included the voice of a of a parent of a trans identified child who also through their, although the parent chose to remain anonymous, like through their exploration of their child's identity, they were actually able to find language for themselves and realize, like, oh my God, like I don't subscribe to pronouns either. And I don't really identify with the sex that I was assigned at birth, right? And so for this parent, it was such a gift having their child come out because it really gave them language to explain their own identity and to find a sense of community. And so like, I just think the more that people can really just be who they are, the more it gives other people permission to do the same. And it's really beautiful. True. And you need to include a link to the Broad Street Review article that you wrote. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you don't no, mind. No, we'll, we'll totally do that. I'd love to do that. So we'll put that in the show notes too. Well, also to keep going along with that conversation of parents supporting children, what are some of the best ways for parents? You've mentioned some already through examples from your mother, but are there any other ways that you think are valuable to mention about how parents can support their children as they're trying to figure out their 
gender and sexual identities? Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, so I think there are so many resources out there. There's great books, there's great tools that people can use, but I think ultimately the most helpful thing that I can think of is being a receptive and like, I'm going to take it back to a phrase that you love, but being a receptive and generous listener, right? Because I think everybody's needs are going to be very unique if they're coming out and if they're sharing about their gender and sexual identity. And so I think the more that people who are listening, whether it be a family member or a friend or a coworker, whatever it is, right? Like the more that you can listen and trust people when they tell you who they are or what they're going through, I think is so important and creating an environment of receptivity Um, and just letting, it's not about you, right? Like it's about that person. So I think that the more that you can just listen and know that it's about that person and if they're sharing with you, it's a sacred thing and they're entrusting you with an element of themselves. And so to just really be a safe person, listen, be receptive. You don't have to have all the answers, but just let that person know that you want to support them and you want to support them in the way that they want you to support them. And so ask, like ask what's needed and and what you can do, if anything, you know, and then just really, just really listen. And also, I think another thing I want to say is that these are seldom ever one conversation, right? Like if someone's coming out to you, if someone's sharing some element of their life, as long as you're receptive and open, the chances are is that like it will become an ongoing conversation and an ongoing exploration. So like just listen and and learn and love that person and and know that like they've just opened a door to some element of their life with you and that that's really wonderful. And you can walk through that door with them as an ally and as a friend and as a loved one and then walk through it again and again and again. So, yeah, I mean, I think it can be a beautiful experience to have someone come out to you. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And also, I imagine that safety and freedom to be oneself is hard in that situation, but it's essential, right? Yeah. And I just want to share a little story on one of our visits to see family in New Orleans. Chris and I, we love to go out to the different restaurants and we were at a jazz bar listening to some music and it happened to be the same weekend as, I don't know if you've heard of the Decadence Festival in New Orleans. It's one of the biggest, you know, we didn't know anything about it, but we learned that weekend that it's one of the biggest LGBTQ festivals in the country. We learned about it because as we were at the jazz bar, we were randomly sitting with a male couple who came in for the weekend and they were telling us about it. Um, And they're both doctors. I can't remember where they were coming from, but it just seemed like such a great festival because they felt like they could be there and just be themselves and be open with each other. And like everyone around them was the same. And if not like us, we embrace that culture and just think it's amazing. And just struck me like, are these festivals so happy because they're like one of the times where everyone from like the same community can come together and truly be themselves and let down their defenses and they don't have to worry about judgment and their safety. Mm -hmm. And are there any other places that LGBTQ members can feel this liberated and not judged? I mean, it just made me feel so like sad for this couple that they're like, yeah, we're coming here because we want to party and let down our hair and like just be ourselves. And why can't you just do that all the time anywhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people should be able to do that all the time anywhere. A, a one thing, though, that is really good is that there are more and more spaces for people to be who they are. And I think that's something that we we really talked about a little bit in the episode, right? Which is it didn't used to be 
okay to be visible in a lot of spaces. Um, and now certainly it's a lot more ubiquitous than it once was to see gay couples and families living their lives and to have organizations that celebrate and, and festivals that celebrate people's identities. And actually, like, I'm really excited about this because I'm attending the Creating Change virtual conference at the end of January, at the end of this month. And I know it's so exciting. And, you know, I think like conferences and festivals and like there, there are more and more things for people. But, and as we mentioned, like trans competency trainings and organizations, like I think people can find community today in a way that just was not possible like 50 years ago, right? And this sense of community is not more than just a Google search away. And I think that that's awesome. And as you pointed out, like not enough. And is it's really, really important. It's important. I'm sorry to cut you up, but you you um, mentioned creating change. Can you talk more about that? What is yeah, it? Yeah, so creating change is the largest LGBTQ activist conference in the country. So every year, thousands of people from across the United States attend, and it's open to everyone. But now, because of the pandemic, it's actually going to be virtual. And so people from all across the world can attend, and it's way more accessible. And The conference itself is about bringing freedom, justice, and equity to all LGBTQ people. And because of that, right, it is open to anyone. So anyone invested in bringing freedom, justice, and equity to all LGBTQ people, which should really be all people should care about that, right, can and should attend Creating Change. And because it's virtual, as I mentioned, it's it's really more accessible than ever. And it's coming up at the end of this month. So we can put a link to the conference website in the show notes. And I think it's really cool, like creating change has the conference itself, like has made the commitment that they are going to be open to anyone who wants to attend. So if finances are a barrier, people can attend for free. Like it's really, really wonderful. And it's a celebration of LGBTQ life and a call to activism and allyship and accomplishment. So it's it's really, it's it's quite special. And I'm excited. This is going to be my first year going. Well, I would love to support you and check it out myself. Could I join? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And yeah, it should be, it should be fun. I'm, I think anyone listening would get a lot out of it. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. Well, I told you I had a lot of questions this time, Daryl. Sorry if I asked too many. No, I think they're great questions. I'm so glad you asked them. And I'm sure that if these things were on your mind, that listeners will be thinking about them as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of listeners, if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. You know, Anna Marie, something I really want our podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Health is so essential and a big part of staying healthy involves giving our bodies everything they need to heal and recover and giving it to our bodies consistently and preventatively, which is why supplements can be so essential. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme and the company's products are amazing and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products 
In fact, they put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can peruse the company website and purchase any of their many offerings on your own. But when you're ready to check out, enter the code diversity to receive a 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Well, Darylise, I'm really loving their supplements, and I'm very glad that I started taking them before this cold weather for my joints. Um, As the weather gets colder, I typically get worse, and I feel like this is a very supportive element that I've added to my diet. So thank you for introducing me to Vita Supreme. Yeah, that's so great. I think, you know, as you mentioned, preventative care is so important, especially with all that's going on in the world these days. I know. Well, Darylise, what do you say we dive into our listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, here's the first listener question. Hey, Darylise, my name is Kristen. Uh, I often run improv workshops and classes, and I always want to be sure as the instructor that I'm making everyone feel comfortable when I'm referring to speaking to them or referring to them. So usually the first class, we go around in the circle to let everyone know what our names are, and I ask for folks to share their preferred pronouns. But I'm also wondering if I should drop the use of preferred and just simply ask, could you share your name and pronouns with the group? Just wondering what your advice is on that. Thank you so much. Bye. Kristen, thank you so much for that question. And I think it's wonderful that you care and that you want to get the language right because specificity of language is really essential. And people might think like, well, what's the difference between saying preferred pronoun and just pronoun? But It is important, and so I'm glad that you brought this question up. There's a really illuminating and useful Forbes article by Ashley Phelps, which is entitled, Why You Should Not Say Preferred Gender Pronouns. And the article really spells out this issue in detail. So we'll include a link to that article in the show notes. But in the meantime, I want to share a few points about why saying preferred pronoun, even if it is well-intentioned, isn't really conveying the allyship that you might think it is or that you might be trying to convey. So just to like break it down in terms of language and semantics, when thinking about the definition of the word prefer, prefer really means to like better or best or to tend to choose, right? So the idea of preferring one thing over another really denotes that either choice would be acceptable, but one is just slightly better. And that doesn't really apply to something like pronouns, right, which are an identity marker. So when a person states their pronouns, they're stating their gender identity. And so to refer to them as anything other than that identity, it's a form of personal erasure, whether it's intentional or not, right? Like if you're referring to someone as a gender that is not their own, it's invalidating of their experience. So we really want to be careful to recognize people as they are and as they self-identify. And that's true of all identity markers, gender just being one of them. So Kristen, just by voicing the question, I think it's very clear that you care and you're kind and you want to get it right, as I think you know most of our listeners do. But a simple fix and more exact language when you're going around the circle in that first class would just be to say exactly what you said. So something to the effect of, okay, let's all give our names and our pronouns. And that's easy, right? But just to remember that like, it's not preferred pronouns because it's really not a preference. It's an identity marker. But thank you so much for that question because I think it emphasized 
the importance of language and the importance of intent, right? And using the language to exercise our intent. And sometimes just small shifts can be really meaningful and make people feel more included. And that's so important. Well, Darylise, thanks for that answer. And I'm looking forward to reading that article myself. Yeah, it goes into a lot more detail than I did. And it's really worth taking the time to learn and, and to be intentional. Well, we actually have two other questions about pronouns. And because these two questions are similar but slightly different, I want to play them back to back for you and then have you answer them. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I'd love that. All right. The first question is from Mary Carpenter. Hi, Darylise. This is Mary Carpenter calling. Love your podcast. So I try very hard to always use the correct pronouns and to not assume and to put my best foot forward. When, however, you know, mistakes are made and I would say the wrong thing inadvertently and there's that awkward moment or several moments, what is the best way to handle that in a way that does not put the onus of the responsibility on the person that I have wronged, but that continues to move the conversation forward. So I hope that's somewhat clear, that question. It's clear in in my head, but maybe not in the way I said it. But anyway, I would love any insight you have on that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And this second one is from an anonymous caller. Hi, Darylise. I am an educator, and I want to create a safe space for all of my students. Uh, When students introduce themselves with pronouns, and I end up forgetting or making a mistake and using a different pronoun, or another student in the class does the same thing, uh, I feel like I am not creating a safe space. And I'm not sure what to do in that moment or how to address it. So I'm just curious about pronoun use in a classroom and making sure we honor what each student is asking for. Uh, If you could speak to that, that would be helpful. Thank you. Thank you both so much for those questions. And Anna Marie, I love that you opted to include both because yes, as you point out, these questions are slightly different. And also it goes to show that this is a question that comes up for a lot of people and a lot of people are grappling with it. And I think it's brave that both of our callers are acknowledging that they haven't always gotten it right. So really thank you to both callers for having the courage to ask because misgendering is, it's a rampant problem in our society. Can you define misgendering? Yeah, yeah, of course. So misgendering occurs when you, it, it can be intentional or unintentional, but it it's when you refer to a person or relate to a person or use language to describe a person that doesn't align with their affirmed gender. So examples might be referring to a woman as he or a man as she, right? Or to a gender non-binary person by either he or she pronouns instead of they, them pronouns. So that that's sort of how misgendering might happen. And the reason that that's damaging is that gender identity, as I mentioned, is part of who you are, right? And and how you see yourself. And, and so it can really shape a person's sense of safety in the world and make it feel like who they are isn't seen and recognized when a person is misgendered. And another thing that I think is often very unintentional, but when you misgender someone, you can be outing them to other people, like unintentionally sometimes. So pronouns matter and gender is important. And at the same time, you know, I really just want to say to the listeners who ask these questions, but to all our listeners that we're all human, right? And we're all capable of 
of making mistakes. So I think bringing it back to the listeners' questions about what do you do if you get it wrong, there's a wonderful Medium article written by Kay Martinez called Pronouns 101, why they matter and what to do and not do if you misgender someone. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But if you're listening to this, please, please, please check out the article because Kay goes in depth on the subject and they do an excellent job of fleshing out the reasons why these things matter and a way better job than I'm about to do in just like a few minutes. But I'm just going to read some of the bullet points from the article about what to do and not do. So here's what Kay says to do if you accidentally misgender someone. Calm your defenses. Apologize. Express gratitude if someone corrects you. And do better moving forward. And then what Kay says not to do is don't make it about you, don't draw attention to the mistake, and don't deflect or trivialize. So Mary, I love that in your question, you spoke about the fact that whenever we misgender someone, we don't want to put the onus on that person to fix it. But at the same time, we want to remain engaged and in conversation. So I love that you brought that up. And I think Kay's article is a great exploration of how to do that. So As I said, they go into far more detail and their article is a must read, but I'll give an example of how you might implement their suggestion, both Mary and the anonymous caller. If you misgender someone, just like take a deep breath, right? As Kay says, calm your defenses, because I think that's important, right? Sort of not to just, it's important to like really like calm down the nervous system and, and diffuse the situation within yourself so that you can really deal with it in an empowered foot forward way. And so, yeah, take a deep breath and then address that person by name and say, whatever their name is, I'm really sorry I misgendered you. And then pause for that person to respond if they choose to respond in whatever way they choose. And then just move forward, right? And on the back end, sort of within yourself, do whatever you can to get it right from that moment forward. So if you have to kind of like practice that person's pronouns in your head or um, write out that person's names and their pronouns or, you know, like whatever you need to do on your end after the fact, do that. But in the moment, definitely it's best not to make it about you and or to look to that person to make you feel better for your mistake, right? And it doesn't mean you have to shame yourself at all. You don't, but don't put the emotional onus on the other person to take care of your negative feelings. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that happens a lot with allyship, right? And it's a function of privilege. Yeah. And I get it. And it's human as well, right? Because I think most people feel bad when they realize that they've hurt someone else. And especially if you care and you're good hearted, right? It's like, oh my God, I don't want you to hurt. But as you point out, Anna Marie, it's important to realize that asking the person you've hurt to support you is actually hurting them more, right? Because then they don't get to have their own experience and the apology becomes less genuine and less meaningful. And so real allyship is being willing to be uncomfortable. Is that why I'm uncomfortable all the time? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you and me both, I think, because we're constantly navigating that, right? And making mistakes and trying to grow and and learning as we go. And I think it's there's a lot of growing pains that come with allyship and accomplice, like, and being an an accomplice, but I think it's worth it. And I learned so much from this work and I'm always 
cringing as like, to be perfectly honest with you and, and our listeners, my past self got things wrong. And I'm sure I get things wrong today, you know, and even though I'm a member of marginalized communities, there are times when I'm oppressed and there are times when I'm the oppressor. And so I think it's just really important to be willing to learn and grow and, and do better moving forward. And I'm so grateful that our listeners brought up this question about misgendering because it happens. And, and it's really like how we deal with those moments and how we course correct that matter. And that I think can be really reparative and restorative if they're dealt with in the right way. Well, totally. I mean, And I wasn't joking. I am uncomfortable all the time, but that's because, you know, I'm really trying hard to grow, especially in this space of LGBTQIA. And I have a lot of blinders and I'm trying to remove them. And you helped me through that, Daryl. So thank you. Um, But yeah, it's all about growth and we're not perfect, but we're trying, right? Yeah. Well, Daryl, let's move on to the next question. Hi, my name is Tracy and I'm calling in from Big Sky, Montana. My question has to do with bullying against gay children and teens. I wanted to know if there are any specific legal protections against bullying for this age group, um, either at the federal level or by state. Thanks so much for this podcast. I really love the range of topics you cover. Thank you. Wow, Tracy, thank you so much for asking that question. It's really important. And I think I want to just take a little bit of time to break it down because there's a lot of component parts to it. So First off, teen bullying is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. And I'm speaking of teen bullying in general. So I think it's important to give some statistics on overall bullying that affects and afflicts American youth. So I got this info from a website, stopbullying.gov, and we'll include a link to their data in the show notes. But according to StopBullying.gov, approximately 20% of students aged 12 to 18 experience bullying. And those stats were collected using data that spanned from 2017 through 2019, which I think is important to note because data showed that nationwide, 19% of students in grades 9 through 12 reported being bullied on school property in the 12 months prior to the survey and 15% were bullied online or by text. And I think that information has probably shifted during the pandemic, but it doesn't mean that bullying is less rampant or less of a problem just because a lot of students aren't currently on campus. And so types of bullying included in this study were being the subject of rumors or lies, being made fun of, being called names or insulted, being pushed, shoved, tripped, or spit on, being deliberately excluded, being threatened with harm, having their property destroyed on purpose, and having others try to make them do things they didn't want to do. So that is terrible and staggering. And again, it's approximately 20% of students are experiencing bullying. But then let's compare that to the bullying that LGBTQ youth or those perceived to be LGBTQ are subjected to. So there are a lot of different really informative sites that offer information about bullying against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning youth or those who are perceived to be LGBTQ. But one website I'll reference is bulliesout.com, and we'll put a link to them in the show notes. And according to Bullies Out, 55% of LGBTQ youth report having experienced homophobic, biphobic, or transphobic bullying. So 55% as compared to 20%. And then uh, in addition to that, 45% of teachers report homophobic bullying among their students. 
and 86% of LGBTQ students regularly hear derogatory anti-gay phrases, comments, and jokes in school. So at the same time, only half of LGBTQ students believe that their schools are opposed to homophobic bullying. And in faith-based schools, this number drops to 37%, right? And so I know I'm giving a lot of statistics here, but I think it's, it's really to drive home the fact that there are quantitative studies that are showing how big of a problem this is. And Bullies Out further points out that in their research, it, it demonstrates that the presence of homophobic language is strongly linked to bullying. So in schools where students hear a lot of anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ language, 68% of gay pupils are bullied, as opposed to 37% in schools where homophobic language is rarely or never heard. So it really goes to show that like the rhetoric is actually driving some of this, right? Or at least there's a correlation behind speech and then the perpetration of violence or prejudice. So just to sum up, Tracy, and I know I haven't even gotten to your question yet, but I wanted to kind of give that background because it's important to recognize that 20% of all students are bullied and more than half, so roughly 55% of LGBTQ students aged 12 to 18 are being bullied. And so now then the question, Tracy's question becomes about legal protection. And sadly, there are no federal laws prohibiting bullying. So there just aren't any federal laws that specifically target bullying. There are federal laws against various forms of harassment. And so when bullying falls into a scenario where it overlaps with harassment, then schools are legally required to address it. But when it's not, like there are no federal regulations. That's not to say that there aren't any protections, because there are. It's just that those things are regulated by state and local laws, which means that there's a huge variance in terms of the scope of those laws and in, in terms of the substance of those laws and what the corrective measures are. So we'll put a link to stopbullying.gov that includes their various legal protections by state and also a link to thebullyproject.com, which includes specific information based on your state. So you can go and find out more information about like how in your state bullying against LGBTQ youth is dealt with and what's protected and what isn't. But I think just what I want all listeners to be aware of is that this is a huge problem and it's widespread and the protections are inadequate and they're not uniform, right? So like students in, in one state might be subject to certain sort of hate speech or bullying and they are not protected and versus students in another state who are subject to the exact same thing. And there are protections in place for those students, right? And we know, we know that for all students who are bullied, that bullying has severe social and psychological ramifications. I think it's essential that wherever people live, they find out what their state laws are. And then if those state laws are inadequate, which most are, Find out what you can do to make them better. Uh, lobby your Congress people. Take action because lives are at stake here. Because LGBTQ youth are not only at a higher risk for being bullied, but also at a higher rate to experience suicidal ideation or to attempt to take their own lives. And these things are interrelated. And so we need to become invested in safeguarding youth from violence. And it is a legal issue, but it's so much bigger than a legal issue. It really requires a paradigm shift and it really requires more people who are willing 
to take action to ensure that students are receiving protection. Well, Darylise, the prevalence of violence against LGBTQ youth and all youth is so sad and scary. Yeah, I know. And, you know, it doesn't go away as children grow into adulthood. The vast majority of LGBTQ adults say that they've experienced some form of harassment or discrimination due to either their gender identity or their sexual orientation. Mm. Well, I think that's a good segue into our next question. This is from an anonymous caller. Hi, I'm calling with a question about the LGBTQ podcast. Uh, I work in a corporation where we have a LGBTQ group and I'm an ally and I work with that group to support them. And I've been hearing that a bunch of folks in our workplace do not feel comfortable coming out publicly about their being gay because they feel like they're going to be discriminated against. And I'm wondering, as an ally, what can we do to support our LGBTQ friends? Thanks. Thank you so much for that question. I think it's important that, you know, you're an ally and that you care and that you want to create a safe space within your corporation. And so I'm so grateful for that. I also want to say that coming out is a deeply personal thing. And so people might choose to or not based on a variety of different factors. But I love that in your question, you asked about creating a safe space so that if people want to be open and and to share that aspect of their lives, that they can do so in a supportive environment. And also, I think it's important that people not feel pressured to reveal more than they might want to, right, whether at work or elsewhere. But in terms of the question, sadly, and this is something I wasn't aware of until I started interviewing people about this topic, and I am a member of the LGBTQ community, so to not be aware of it, it was shocking to me, right, that I'd been so unaware and also a function of my own privilege that I didn't know this. But only 21 states have full non-discrimination protection for members of the LGBTQ community. In practical terms, what this means is that there are still many states, the majority of states, where people can be fired or not hired or refused an apartment or barred from certain organizations or discriminated in other ways based on their gender identity or their sexual orientation or their perceived identity or orientation. And There's uh, Freedom for All Americans is a really wonderful organization. We'll put a link to their website in which they give a breakdown by state of the protections and which states do not have any protections and which states have partial and which states have full protections. And actually, I've interviewed someone from Freedom for All Americans, Casey Sufredini, for season two. So we'll be going into some of these issues in more depth in season two. But in the meantime, you know, I'm bringing up freedomforallamericans.org because they give breakdowns by state of discrimination protections or lack thereof. I'm pulling it back to the listener's question, right? It was like, well, my question was about what I do at my corporation and, and why does it matter protections by state? But why I'm bringing this up is that The question was around how do we make the workplace safer for people to come out? But the first step to even doing that is that if you live in a state that doesn't have protection against discrimination, no matter how safe you think your organization is, the truth is, is that it's really not because there's no remedy for wrongful termination or discrimination. So people can't be assured that if they're coming out, their job is safe. They don't have that security if you live in a state where that security is not 
a legal protection, right? And so I think the first step to even creating an environment where there is safety is to learn if yours is a state which includes full protection. And if it isn't, learn how to get involved in changing that and take action to make it better. That said, let's assume that you live in a state where there is protection from discrimination. And if that is the case, there are a lot of steps you can take to create a more inclusive environment. A small but meaningful step is to provide your pronoun in your introduction and in your email signature, right? So like that, we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of pronouns and to just lead by example that like you are a person who offers your pronouns, I think gives other people the space to offer theirs. Also educating yourself, which it sounds like you're doing about everything, right? From the use of inclusive language and like why these things matter and just creating an environment of safe sharing and and something else that you can do like this it might seem like a small change but it's meaningful if you have a significant other or someone in your life with whom you have a romantic relationship or a partnership referring to that person as your partner or your spouse or your significant other is a great way to show allyship as opposed to perhaps referring to that person as like your husband or your wife or boyfriend or girlfriend right like because language such as partner or spouse or significant other is very inclusive and it lets people know that like oh okay like you have an understanding right that of more expansive forms of gender and partnership and things like that that i think allow people to feel more comfortable something else right is like if someone in your life or you are pregnant not stressing the assigned sex of the baby, because I think that's like a huge thing that we do in our culture, right? It's like people find out someone's pregnant and they're like, oh, what's the sex of your baby, right? And like, and so not doing things like that and just letting it be known that you create within yourself an inclusive environment around sex and gender and orientation, and then really not making jokes about gender or orientation, which probably you're not doing if you're an ally and you're asking this question. But I think that kind of humor is so ubiquitous and people almost like don't realize that they're doing it. So really unpacking whatever internal constructions you have about gender identity or sexual orientation and and listening is really essential. And I think the more that we can lead with listening, the more we can learn what people authentically want and need and and not project onto them. And and the more we create safer and safer spaces for people to be who they are. Well, Darylise, I'm adding my pronouns as we speak to my signature. Thank you for that recommendation. I love that. Yeah. And so before we say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. So during each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week, the name we picked is Emily Anderson. Emily is one of our subscribers to our newsletter, and we'll be contacting Emily to arrange to send out a free T-shirt as a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. If you want to be eligible to win a t-shirt, call, email, or subscribe to our email list. Subscribing is great because you'll keep up to date on all of our episodes and events. Yes, just go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. It only takes a few seconds. Congratulations, Emily. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and thanks to everyone else who's listening too. Yes. You make our lives so much better and we couldn't be more grateful for you. It's really, I think, 
I, I speak for both of us when I say we consider this really sacred and really special. So thank you all. Totally. And each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of our podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity. Embracing Our Shared Humanity by Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Body Diversity, an exploration of the danger and discrimination that result from diet culture. In the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.